Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, please turn your Bible to the book of Genesis, first book in your Bible. We'll be looking in uh, chapter 9 today. Actually, we'll start in chapter 8, start in 820, but be focusing on uh, chapter 9. We're continuing our, our look through Genesis and particularly our look through the story of Noah and the ark. And we've seen, starting in chapter 6, the uh, promise of a judgment that was to come and the flood, which came. Oh, thanks. <laughs> See, this is how you know what your friends are. Y'all didn't say anything. All right. George, you're a good friend. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, I came up here so fast that it blew my, blew that up there. All right. I'm ready to be up here. So, uh, yeah, so looking at chapter 6, God's promise of judgment, his uh, sending of a flood, and his uh, giving Noah covenants and saying, I'll deliver you through the, this ark, which you're going to build. We saw Noah on the ark in chapter 7. We saw, you know, a year-long trial, which he endured in being a part of that and, and how our trials uh, have a work of, of changing us and God using them to build us. And then last week we looked at coming off that ark and the faith that is entailed in, in moving away uh, from um, you know, God's, uh, the, the past calling that God has for us and for the new calling that God has for us as we move forward into the new life that God calls us to in Jesus Christ. And today we want to look at life after the fall and God's provision for evil and God's provision for sin inside of the world. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and then we'll read all the way through chapter 9, verse 17. So if you would, out of respect for God's word, please stand for the reading of the word here. Genesis eight twenty, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made, that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. The flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever wanted a do-over, a time to, to scrap the past and start over. Maybe a time to take some words back. Maybe words that started a fight. Uh, maybe to have those last-second free throws back and, and, and to win the game. Or maybe in a more extreme uh, case, just to go to a place where no one knows you, uh, no one knows what you've done, maybe to do, to do something completely new. Any of you who've ever played a video game, you know the power of a reset button. Maybe the game is not going your way. Uh, maybe your mission failed. Maybe you're frustrated. And what, what's one thing you can do? You can hit that reset button and you can start over. It's the nice thing about games. It's not always true of real life, right? Uh, you can push that button and start over again as if some of the bad stuff never happened. Well, as much as we might like to think that we can just reset our lives, uh, we, cannot never, we cannot ever completely hit a reset, can we? We can never get a complete do-over. It's because our words don't go away. Uh, prejudices continue. Uh, we can't just reset our conscience. And wherever we go, we know we bring ourselves with us. And we can't get away from ourselves, no matter how much that we might try, there we go with us, bringing our experiences, our personality, our mood, our background. Um, we can't do a full reset. And even if we do try to reset things, unless we adjust uh, in the future, unless we live differently for the future, uh, we're likely to get the same results. How many times have we tried the same thing over and over again, only to find the same results until someone tells us it's because we keep making the same mistakes? I assume there's some golfers out here who would say that, made the same mistake over and over, and I keep getting the same results. Well, the best that we can do, though, is to work to restore what's broken. We can ask forgiveness, and we can grant forgiveness. We can learn from our mistakes, but... We can't get a complete, over, complete do-over. Well, as we get to Genesis chapter 9, we might think that God has hit the reset button, but he hasn't, at least not completely. Now, what was the reset that happened? Of course, we know that there is a massive flood where all life was blotted out from the earth, animals as well as humans. And, and why was that reset hit? It was because of the evil that went up on the earth. People flaunted sin before God. There was unbridled wickedness and unbridled violence upon the earth. And there was no other recourse than the flood. That was God's sovereign choice. But God did not reset everything. I mean, he could have reset everything, but he didn't. Uh, God have completely started over, but he kept Noah and he kept his family. He kept the animals alive. 
And if he hadn't uh, kept them alive, that we wouldn't even be having this conversation now. But, but, but he did. And so now that we're here, at the end of chapter 8 and chapter 9, now that the flood is gone, now that Noah is off the ark, God plans to rebuild. He's going to rebuild with Noah and his family. Here's the thing, though, is that human nature, and particularly sin in the heart of man, the evil that man is capable of, those things did not change in the ark. We'll see that today. It's not like sin disappeared. It's not like people suddenly became good. There was a stowaway on that ark, and that stowaway was human sin. It was hidden in the hearts of every person on that ship, even Noah. Noah had that same human nature as you and I do. And the thing that made him different was God's grace, not some bit of inherent goodness on his part. And so after the flood, human nature remains the same. That's part of God's providence. But God's dealing with it changed. God did not eradicate sin and evil in the flood. But what did he do in the flood? But he judged it. He judged sin. He judged evil, but did not eradicate it. And we would like to think that if just we set up our lives just right, if just we put ourselves inside the right environment, if just we get rid of evil and sin in the world, um, and we have the right structures, if we have the right parents in place, then everything would be okay. But if there's anything that Genesis 8 and 9 shows us, it's that sin and evil are going to remain with us. You can't spend a year on a boat and get rid of it. You can't hide in a cave and avoid it. You can't keep your kids from bad influences and so that they're going to avoid sin completely. That's because sin is in the human heart. We need another solution than just avoiding it. That's what we see God dealing with today. All right, we're going to see this and God's solution. We see it in, uh, starting in chapter 8 as, as um, chapter 8 finishes with a big part of God's solution. And a big part of it is his mercy and his grace. Believe it or not, you know, this is one of God's big uh, solutions to sin in the human heart is mercy and grace. In chapter 8, verse 20, we see God's mercy. As Noah gets off the ark, the first thing that he does is he offers a sacrifice to God. We read that Noah put an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then verse 21 speaks about God's response. We see at first that he was pleased with it. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he was happy with that. And then out of that, he, he makes a promise. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So this is God's covenant to himself, his promise to himself. He's going to communicate it later, but right now he's intentioning uh, what his plan is in the future. But this next part is important because this promise is made despite the reality of human sin in the heart. Notice what he says next. He says, well, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we can see God expressing in his own heart what his intentions are. Seeing that human nature has not changed, human beings are still sinful, that human beings are not gonna suddenly do good after the flood, that the disposition is towards evil, that the heart of every person is still evil from his youth, and yet in that, God promises mercy. It's mercy, he's not going to give people what they deserve. 
despite sin, despite evil inside of the human heart. Now he moves on from there as we see God moves just from mercy into sheer grace. He gives good gifts, undeserved gifts to his people even without their work or meriting it. We see in verse 1, as God gives instructions to Noah, he says in chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Repeating that same command that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, and now it's repeated for a second time. Still the same responsibility. Still the same calling. Be fruitful, multiply. Take dominion over the earth. God's still giving his gifts to his creation. Humanity still has a purpose, still has a calling. There are some changes. We can see it in verses 2 and 3. 2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. It's a change in the nature of the relation between man and animal, maybe partly because of this next thing. He goes on to say, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And many commentators point out this is a, probably a transition from maybe a vegetarian diet to a, to a more uh, meat and, and vegetable diet for humanity. So here we see God giving the dominion over the whole earth um, to, uh, giving the whole, whole earth to man's dominion. You know, with that new thing, animals as, as, as food. But there's a limit to it. We see that in verse 4, as we see that you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. God, in giving this limit, is, is showing that man is creating his image is different than the animals. He's not to eat like an animal does, but he's able he's, he, to eat as those who respect life, those who respect clean food, those who see uh, cleanliness and holiness as part of their lives, and who live orderly lives of thoughtful preparation. And so as God gives mercy we, in withholding judgment, we also see his grace of giving every good thing to, um, to Noah and his descendants. Even though he says, we saw in verse 21, that man still carries this sin in his heart. Now it brings up a question for us. What then is going to keep the world from becoming as bad as it was before the flood? What's going to change is it going to be the same thing again? Will people take advantage of God's mercy? Will they take advantage of God's grace with no hope of improvement? Life needed to be respected. And sin, unrighteousness, and evil needed to be restrained. Remember what his command was? Be fruitful, multiply. That's hard if violence is rampant upon the earth and murder. And so what God does is he gives the resources to combat sin and evil, things that we need to receive and walk in as God gives his gifts to us. That's what we want to look at today. These two things uh, that God has given to us. The first thing uh, we want to look at today starts in verse 5, where we see God gives human government. God gives human government. The earth before the flood was, it was a violent place. And one way of stopping the violence that we see in starting verse 5, is to make the consequences of violence greater than the benefit of violence. Verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. 
What God does here is he sets up a system of self-government. When Cain killed Abel, back in Genesis chapter 4, no one kept him accountable for his actions. He threatened anyone who would hold him accountable with the threat of violence. If you look back at Genesis 4, 23, a man named Lamech brags about killing another man. And then he threatens to um, avenge, he, he threatens the avenging of his own death if someone were to retaliate against him with 75, 77 times more damage against anybody who would try to bring retribution. You know, you can imagine the violence which is multiplying upon the earth at the time. Now we're in Genesis 4 through 6, do we see a system of restraints? God is the one who acts in judgment. Small acts of, of, of human judgment could uh, keep things from getting so bad that a major act of judgment would ever be needed. So what does God do here in, in Genesis 9? Is he puts government into the hands of men. No longer will people be able to take life without a reckoning. Verse 6 shows us why. Man is created in God's image. That's really important. Man is created in God's image. And to do unjust violence to another person is to strike at the very image of God. An unjust, unjust act of violence against another person is an attack upon God upon whose image that person is made. That's why murder is so offensive. So we read our newspapers. So we see the things that, that happen as we hear the news. It's because it's really a strike against God as well. Human life and, and a strike against his image. It's how personal sin is, even to God. And so God sets up the system of capital punishment. A person is have such legal protection that violating these protections has, has a grave consequence. That unjustly taking someone else's life means that the murderer would justly be put to death. At the direction of, of God alone, who has the right to make a command like this, he is the one who governs life and death. We have to recognize this as the, the beginning of human self-government. Now, notice a few things here. First of all, we see that there's a, a system of accountability. People will not be able to get away with crimes. We, we try to set up, crime, uh, set up systems of justice on earth that match as, as much as humanly possible the creative design of God and his good and just character. That's the calling of any government. Second, there, a legal process is required. We see that here. It's insinuated in this that a legal process is required. No one is allowed to casually take someone else's life. It needs to be proven that one person killed another before their life would be taken. If you read the rest of the Bible, you'll read um, how God gives methods and requirements for gathering evidence and requiring witnesses. This is about, you know, this is a verse which speaks to capital punishment. You know, one of the arguments which is often, often given against the death penalty today is that people are not given adequate legal representation. You know, and that's a serious issue that has to be dealt with. In our country, it's, it's said, and, and this is um, not very reasonable, that the poor are, are much more likely to be convicted of violent crimes than the rich. That they receive the death penalty more than wealthy Americans, even for the same crimes. Many times this works against minorities and especially African Americans. Many say that underrepresentation of lawyers, that racial stereotyping can unjustly leave the poor and minorities open to inaccurate verdicts, the use of faulty evidence, and conviction and things which, which others who come from wealthier backgrounds seem to work through. And that's things that shouldn't happen. Well, I think that, that this passage clearly gives a uh, defense of capital punishment, 
you know, we think it's, we, we know from the scripture, this and others, that it's important that trials be handed justly. If they cannot, there should not be the application of a death penalty until those problems are corrected. For any of us who are responsible in the government of our nation, we keep this in mind. But the principle still stands. And the human desire for justice requires that the guilty are punished and that innocent or not. It's a call to patience. It's a call to the pursuit of certainty and diligence. If we're ever called to serve on a jury, if we're ever interacting with political leaders. The requirement for legal process also forbids the use of vigilante justice. You know, we're not allowed to take justice into our own hands. God has established human government to address those issues, not individuals. We work within a court system inside of our nation. There's a system which is implied, you know, and grows out of here. Jesus expressly forbids any sort of personal retribution and revenge to someone else. We are called to be peacemakers, which means working within the systems of government which, which God has providentially provided. And even if that means that we personally suffer within it, we'd rather suffer unjustly than to take a life or to damage God's image. Jesus said we're not even to hate somebody in our hearts, to speak evil against another person, to kill them with their own hearts, personally, individually, but to forgive and to pray as far as it goes for personal grievances. So there's a system of accountability. There's a legal process that's required. But we also see a limit of government. You know, that the punishment must fit the crime. This command provides a death penalty only to acts of murder here. Government is restricted in only making moral laws. Some people would say that you can't legislate morality. And I think I know what they mean, and I'll talk about more about that later. But really, I mean, moral things are the only things that we can rightly legislate. I mean, laws must be moral. Laws do change behavior. They change the sense of what people think is right or wrong, and it's a tyrannical thing to legislate something that is immoral or, or contrary to God-given fundamental human rights. The government cannot make something moral that is immoral, and it must not celebrate things that are more immoral by legalizing or encouraging wrong behavior. Sure, many laws are a matter of wisdom, in application, it's not always easy to make them, but those who create them should always have an eye to what's just and moral. So there are two errors that people make when it comes to government. One of the errors that people make when we think about government is not respecting it enough. Government, with its laws, those are human good. And we see it, a gift that's given to Noah here, gift given for human flourishing here. Laws are given to protect life, liberty, and property. Government should help people to work together for the common good. Even if we don't like all of our laws, and even if we get in trouble by the law ourselves, we notice when law and order is gone. Romans chapter 13 speaks about this. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, and avenger who carries out God's wrath of the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." 
So when government is properly exercised and respected by the people, there is usually good flourishing of the people of that nation. Right after God gives, and it's interesting because you see right after God gives this command in verse 6, in verse 7, what does he say? He says, and you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. You know, in other words, this system of government is essential for the flourishing of people upon the earth and the fulfilling of this command. So we need to see that connection where there is justice there is flourishing. But when government turns unjust, or the people turn unjust, there is suffering. So first, we cannot respect government enough, but the second thing is that we can um, make an error by expecting too much out of government. Here's the thing, is that government and laws cannot change human nature. I mean, good laws can change habits. Good laws can keep people accountable. Good laws can discourage bad behavior. But a law will never change human nature. There were murders before Genesis 9-6, and there were murders after Genesis 9-6. The law may have discouraged murder from happening. It may have showed the value of the human life, but it couldn't prevent murder from happening, and it certainly didn't make people more loving. Furthermore, a nation's laws, especially in a democracy, is a reflection of the moral nature of those people. And so if the people are corrupt and becoming more corrupt, the government and its laws will also become that way. That's why John Adams, when he was speaking about our own nation and our own constitution, he said that our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That was a sense. It was a sense of the founders, is that our constitution was required a moral and, re- right, and religious people. So we need more than laws to make a moral people. And that's going to lead to our second point. How does God deal with sin and evil after the flood? First, we see the importance of human government. He's made these external laws. But the second thing we see is the covenant and the covenant which redeems people. He makes a promise. That's a promise which is critical for internal change. All right, so that leads us into verse 8. And our second point where God gives a promise of patient mercy. God gives a promise of patient mercy. Verse 8, we see God making a covenant with Noah and his descendants. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So God's going back to what he said in Genesis six eighteen, When he promised Noah, I will make a covenant with you. I suggested you circle that word because here it is again, God making his covenant with Noah. Now, covenant is an agreement which, which states how two or more people are going to come together to relate with one another. In this case, it's, it's a statement of how God is going to relate to Noah and his descendants. Notice it comes right on the heel of what he says of how Noah is to relate with self-government upon this earth. But it says how God is going to relay with Noah and his descendants and how God is going to relay with all the animals and how they are then going to relay with God. Covenant is a highly relational agreement. It's more than just a contract where two people share a certain task together, but a covenant indicates a form of a long-term, if not a lifelong or even an eternal relationship based on certain agreements together. It's a very important word. Again, it's just one that's good to underline a circle. Now, Noah doesn't really have much say in this covenant. It's pretty much given to him as a requirement. God is sovereign. Noah is not. Noah receives it. But it's still a great blessing to him, isn't it? 
and a great blessing to all of his descendants. There's an enormous promise that's given here. We see the promise in verse 11 where God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is pure mercy. Again, he doesn't say it because people are suddenly going to be good or people are suddenly righteous or because, because they're suddenly going to become better. He speaks out of it as a reflection of his mercy. And while uh, human government may help curb violence, it just won't end it. And what God says, he won't stop future violence with another flood. In other words, history is moving forward to God's end game. And human government, it, it will be enough to stem some of those worst evils. But greater than that, God is saying he will build his kingdom by grace in something that not even human sin can stop. He's committed to building that. Something else is important here in dealing with the sin and, and evil. That's the, this relationship that we have with God. If government cannot change a human heart, what does? If government can't make us more, more moral, what will? It's a covenant relationship with God. God makes a moral people through covenant with them. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And here, there's another covenant that's described. It's called the New Covenant. It's one that Jesus fulfilled, ultimately. He fulfilled all the covenants. In fact, we believe the covenants just build on each other. God is revealing more and more and more as we go through the covenants inside of the Old Testament. And the uh, covenant with Noah was really the second one. So right at the beginning, showing God's trajectory, where, where God is going, we see more detail here. Jeremiah 31 through 34. We talk about the new covenant. This is what Jesus fulfilled in his life. This is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, with all of God's people. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Covenant they broke, that though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel on those days, declares the Lord. All right, what is it? What is it that God is going to do with his people? And he says this, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and know, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. So what this covenant tells us is that as we come to know God, as we come to know him personally, we also are shaped by his will. We're shaped by his heart. We're shaped by his intention. We're shaped by his commands. We're shaped by his mind. In other words, as we come to know God more and more, our moral character is shaped more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what uh, Romans eight twenty nine tells us, as we become more and more like Jesus. You see, it's his covenant love that he shows us that shapes our decision-making and our moral character. It starts with his love. It starts with his mercy and his kindness. And there's a connection between then this grows out of the covenant that's given to Noah. God does not give us what we deserve if we, as his people, but he has patience with us and he calls us to repentance and faith. And as we discover God, as we come into a relationship with him, as we grow in Christ, what happens? We become a more moral people who can fulfill God's call upon their lives. Jesus himself said, if you, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. 
It's the result of knowing the love of God and of loving God. Now, all of this, this promise is given here, this promise of making uh, a forgiven people, a moral people, a righteous people, this was fulfilled and accomplished by Jesus. And that leads us into our third point, starting in verse 12, where we see God giving a sign. God gives human government. God makes a promise to everyone on earth, and then God gives a visible reminder of his promise. It's It's a reminder that we can all see. That everyone can remember, and we see that in verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Rain was something that was new upon the earth, and so I think rainbows were also new in the world. And what God does is to use this new phenomenon as the sign of his covenant. What does a sign do? What does a rainbow do? It reminds, first thing it says, it reminds God of his promise. It's a consistent reminder of the promise to redeem a people for himself. Look at verse 14. He says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of the flesh that is on the earth. God doesn't forget things. You know, the reminder to God really is a reminder and a sign to us, right? Signs, signs are important to us as, as physical beings. We're usually very visually oriented. We're sensory oriented. You know, we taste things. We hear things. And seeing the sign of the rainbow with our eyes, it brings certain truths back into our mind and our heart. You just can't help but do it. I mean, it's like advertising. You know, sometimes you, you see an advertisement for something, you think, well, I never wanted that before I saw this advertisement. Or even those pop-ups that, that, that are on your phone. I try to get rid of every pop-up that ever comes up on my phone because for every pop-up that comes up, I, it just affects my mind. I think, oh, maybe I should go check that. Maybe I should go look at that. And you know what? I mean, it's bad, especially when I'm in church or something. I mean, it's just so distracting. So just try to get rid of, I try to get rid of all those things. Again, some we didn't think about until it pops up, get in our attention. The rainbow is a pop-up to get our attention for what God has done, what God has promised, what he's withheld. He has withheld judgment. And that God offers relationship. There's other signs inside the Bible, right? He, God gave circumcision to Abraham as a sign of God's acceptance of, of Abraham's call to be different. God gave Moses the sign of the burning bush to show that he was with his people. He gave the sign of the baby and the manger to the shepherds and the magi, the sign that God was redeeming the world. God has given us sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, as signs of the church, signs to the church. Luke 22, 19 and 20, we're reminded of Jesus. And what Jesus said, he, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to celebrate that here in a minute. Now, what about this rainbow sign? What does that do? First thing we see is it's a sign to the whole world. Every single person, whether they have faith or not, gets a reminder of God's mercy and grace. This is given to Noah and his descendants, which is everybody upon the earth. Every person, when they see that rainbow, learns something about God and their need of forgiveness. 
confirms something to us in Romans 1, which says that everyone has a visual testimony of God, his existence, his law, his mercy. It's a sign of the world. Secondly, the rainbow is a sign of God's, mer- of God's mercy. It's helpful to see that the bow is in the shape of a weapon of war, right? Like a bow and arrow. When an archer hangs up his bow, how does he hang it up? Well, he hangs it up in the exact shape of a rainbow. Reminds us that God has hung up his bow. Reminds us for all those who've received Jesus Christ, have their sins forgiven, that God no longer aims his bow of wrath upon them. Jesus has brought a way of peace. God does not give us what we deserve, but he holds it back in mercy. The rainbow is also a sign of God's grace. Another way to look at the bow, right, is that it's a weapon of war that's faced upward. It's not faced downward upon the earth as if God is going to strike the, the earth or strike sinners with his wrath, but it's in fact a bow which is aimed upward into the very heart of God. And it's a reminder to us of every blessing that we have. It comes because God the Son took the arrow of God's wrath into his own body as he died on the cross. Instead of coming against us, God's wrath was shot into Jesus' body. And instead of God's wrath, we get every blessing. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is rainbow. This is given to every person on this planet, but it has to be the message that's behind it, the message which ultimately points to Jesus Christ, who is crucified and risen again, that has to be received by personal faith in order to be beneficial to us. The rainbow is a marker of repentance and faith, that God will provide a way, that he has provided a way. Would you believe it? Would you receive it? Government is good, but, but government will never save us. We need a savior. Every person lives under that promise. I mean, it's a promise that, that, that the judgment will, um, it's, it's not a promise that judgment will never come. It says that judgment will not come before God's end game. It says that judgment will not come by a flood. But it's a promise that judgment will not come before a redeemer has been sent into the world. That there is a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. So every time we see a rainbow, we're called to believe in him. We're called to look to Jesus. It's a reminder we need forgiveness to believe and be saved. It's a reminder that we have daily mercy from a gracious God. It's a reminder to take advantage of that mercy by diving in and finding the salvation that he's provided by knowing this God who has given and reached out to us in covenant to know him, to know him better and to see him change us. It's a time to believe in Jesus Christ. Every time you see a rainbow, it is a reminder to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder to us of those, it's a reminder to us uh, who are Christians who name the name of Christ, that we're supposed to be like that rainbow. I mean, we are ourselves signs of God's grace. It's a sad thing that the rainbow has been co-opted culturally to mean something different than man intended it to be. It has been shifted into something so sexualized. But the rainbow is God's sign of withheld judgment. The rainbow is a sign of God's mercy. The rainbow is a sign of the call to righteousness that's based on love. But as the rainbow is a sign of God's mercy, as believers in Jesus Christ, we share the good news of God's mercy. We explain it to guilty consciences, those who want to be reconciled with God. 
This is a unilateral covenant, meaning it just comes down from God upon people. God has done everything needed to have forgiveness. We don't earn mercy, he gives it. We didn't, um, um, he didn't have to make this covenant, but he did. We didn't have much choice about the covenant, but we do have a choice about how to respond. How will you respond? It's a covenant that's given that's unconditional. There's nothing that you have to do to, to get this promise. You just receive it. You don't earn it. You just receive it as a gift. God has done everything necessary to receive eternal life. He sent his own son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Would you believe that? Have you received it for yourself? And my hope and prayer for everyone here is that you've received it as your own hope. Jesus Christ, the payment of your sin. Receive with gratitude because this is good news for the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what is it that keeps us from full, fully enjoying your blessings? God, isn't it the, the power of sin within us? Isn't it the, the ways that we've walked away from you? Father, it leaves us short of enjoying the gifts that you've given to us. God, we know that laws and rules will not make us good. We've already transgressed your laws in the past. Father, our, our hearts are rebellious against so many of the moral laws that you give to us. They won't change us. We need something more powerful inside of us. If we're going to please you, God, we need a heart change. Help us, Father, to see the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to go deeper into that gospel of Jesus Christ. And then knowing him and knowing your love, that we'd find the very power to change and become the people you'd call us to be. We ask you, God, for your help in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the great signs that God has given to us is the sign of the Lord's Supper.